Hey there, team. Welcome. Beyond the Walls with Team Rovision. I'm LDR. We have an incredible episode for you all today, as we have the privilege to listen to the words of the Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., read by Pastor Kendra Ketter Chavis. We pray that your hearts would be opened and your minds illuminated as the word is proclaimed. Every year, on the third Monday of January, the United States of America recognizes a federal holiday honoring the life and the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Pushed by Michigan Congressman John Conyers four days after the Reverend Dr. King's conspiratorial assassination until its federal success in 1986 and later its nationwide acknowledgement in the year 2000, this day has come to be a significant observation for many. Some, to remind the world of the long arc of justice we still have to travel along, and others, who take pause to engage in volunteer service and goodwill activities. However, after a year when health, economic, and racial tensions appear to have imploded in the land branded for freedom, this MLK Day 2021 may call on much more for us to consider. At the time of this recording, political tensions have reached a fever pitch, and the American church has become the most sought-after date to the dance. Questions of morality, power, and influence have been posed, and as Christians, many of us are asking the history-shaping question, where do we go from here? Scripture tells us there is nothing new under the sun, and with this in mind, I am honored to share the sermonized words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whose words call us back home to the depths of love and kingdom witness. This is Paul's letter to American Christians, delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, on the 4th of November, 1956, originally by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today read myself, Kendra Ketterchavis. Please listen and consider. I would like to share with you an imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The postmark reveals that it comes from the city of Ephesus. After opening the letter, I discovered that it was written in Greek rather than English. At the top of the first page was this request. Please read to your congregation as soon as possible and then pass on to the other churches. For several weeks, I have worked assiduously with the translation At times, it has been difficult, but now I think I have deciphered its true meaning. May I hasten to say that if in presenting this letter, the contents sound strangely Kingian instead of Paulinian, attributed to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. It is miraculous indeed that the Apostle Paul should be writing a letter to you and to me nearly 1900 years after his last letter appeared in the New Testament. How is this possible? 
is something of an enigma wrapped in a mystery. The more important thing, however, is that I can imagine the Apostle Paul writing a letter to American Christians in 1956 AD. And here is the letter as it stands before me. I, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to you who are in America, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For many years, I have longed to be able to come to see you. I have heard so much of you and what you are doing. I have heard of the fascinating and astounding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I have heard of your dashing subways and flashing airplanes. Through your scientific genius, you have been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. You have been able to carve highways through the stratosphere. So in your world, you have made it possible to eat breakfast in New York City and dinner in Paris, France. I have also heard of your skyscraping buildings with their prodigious towers steeping heavenward. I have heard of your great medical advances, which have resulted in the curing of many dread plagues and diseases and therefore prolonged your life and made for greater security and physical well-being. All of that is marvelous. You can do so many things in your day that I could not do in the Greco-Roman world of my day. In your age, you can travel distances in one day that took me three months to travel. That is wonderful. You have made tremendous strides in the area of scientific and technological development. But America, as I look at you from afar, I wonder whether your moral and spiritual progress has been commiserate with your scientific progress. It seems to me that your moral progress lags behind your scientific progress. Your poet, Thoreau, used to talk about improved means to an unimproved end. How often this is true. You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. Through your scientific genius, you have made of the world a neighborhood. But through your moral and spiritual genius, you have failed to make of it a brotherhood. So America, I would urge you to keep your moral advances abreast with your scientific advances. I am impelled to write you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to live as Christians in the midst of an unchristian world. That is what I had to do. That is what every Christian has to do. But I understand that there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some such principle as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. For so many of you, morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the mores are accepted as the right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking some sort of Gallup poll 
of the majority opinion, how many are giving their ultimate allegiance this way? But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or, as I said to the Philippian Christians, ye are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to be to the empire of eternity. You have dual citizenry. You live in both time and eternity, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the almighty God. I understand that you have an economic system in America known as capitalism. Through this economic system, you have been able to do wonders. You have become the richest nation in the world, and you have built up the greatest system of production that history has ever known. All of this is marvelous, but Americans, there is the danger that you will misuse your capitalism. I still contend that money can be the root of all evil. It can cause one to live a life of gross materialism. I am afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary and the size of the wheelbase of your automobile rather than the quality of your service to humanity. The misuse of capitalism can also lead to tragic exploitation. This has so often happened in your nation. They tell me that one-tenth of one percent of the population controls more than 40 percent of the wealth. <laughs> oh, America, how often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxury to the classes? If you are to be a truly Christian nation, you must solve this problem. You cannot solve the problem by turning to communism, for communism is based on an ethical relativism and a metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. You can work within the framework of democracy to bring about a better distribution of wealth. You can use your powerful economic resources to wipe poverty from the face of the earth. God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth while others live in abject, deadening poverty. God intends for all of his children to have the basic necessities of life. And he has left in this universe enough and to spare for that purpose.
So I call upon you to bridge the gulf between abject poverty and superfluous wealth. I would that I could be with you in person so that I could say to you face to face what I am forced to say to you in writing. Oh, how I long to share in your fellowship. Let me rush on to say something about the church. Americans, I must remind you, as I have said to so many others, that the church is the body of Christ. So when the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. But I am disturbed about what you are doing to the body of Christ. They tell me that in America, you have within Protestantism more than 256 denominations. The tragedy is not so much that you have such a multiplicity of denominations, but that most of them are warring against each other with a claim to absolute truth. This narrow sectarianism is destroying the unity of the body of Christ. You must come to see that God is neither a Baptist nor a Methodist. He is neither a Presbyterian nor an Episcopalian. God is bigger than all of our denominations. If you are to be a true witness to Christ, you must come to see that America. But I must not stop with a criticism of Protestantism. I'm disturbed about Roman Catholicism. This church stands before the world with its pomp and power, insisting that it possesses the only truth. It incorporates an arrogance that becomes a dangerous spiritual arrogance. It stands with its noble Pope who somehow rises to the miraculous heights of infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra. But I am disturbed about a person or an institution that claims infallibility in this world. I am disturbed about any church that refuses to cooperate with other churches under the pretense that it is the only true church. I must emphasize the fact that God is not a Roman Catholic and that the boundless sweep of his revelation cannot be limited to the Vatican. Roman Catholicism must do a great deal to mend its ways. There is another thing that disturbs me to no end about the American church. You have a white church and you have a Negro church. You have allowed segregation to creep into the doors of the church. How can such division exist in the true body of Christ? You must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning to sing all hail the power of Jesus name and dear Lord and father of all mankind, you stand in the most segregated hour of Christian America. They tell me that there is more integration in the entertaining world and other secular agencies than there is in the Christian church. How appalling that is. I understand that there are Christians among you who try to justify segregation on the basis of the Bible. They argue that the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Oh, my friends, this is blasphemy. This is against everything that the Christian religion stands for. I must say to you, as I have said to so many Christians before, that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one 
in Christ Jesus. Moreover, I must reiterate the words that I uttered on Mars Hill. God, that made the world and all things therein, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. So Americans, I must urge you to get rid of every aspect of segregation. The broad universalism standing at the center of the gospel makes both the theory and practice of segregation morally unjustifiable. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we all have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. The segregator relegates the segregated to the status of a thing rather than elevate him to the status of a person. The underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of segregation and all the dialects of the logicians cannot make them lie down together. I praise your Supreme Court for rendering a great decision just two or three years ago. I am happy to know that so many persons of goodwill have accepted the decision as a great moral victory. But I understand that there are some brothers among you who have risen up in open defiance. I hear that their legislative halls ring loud with such words as nullification and interposition. They have lost the true meaning of democracy and Christianity. So I would urge each of you to plead patiently with your brothers and tell them that this isn't the way. With understanding goodwill, you are obliged to seek to change their attitudes. Let them know that in standing against integration, they are not only standing against the noble precepts of your democracy, but also against the eternal edicts of God himself. <laughs> yes, America, there is still the need for an Amos to cry out to the nation. Let judgment roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. May I just say a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil? Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, Unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or humiliate him or even to pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as yourself. Let him know that the festering sore of segregation debilitates the white man as well as the Negro. 
With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. Many persons will realize the urgency of seeking to eradicate the evil of segregation. There will be many Negroes who will devote their lives to the cause of freedom. There will be many white persons of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to take a stand for justice. Honesty impels me to admit that such a stand will require a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often, you will be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it might mean going to jail. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail with your presence. It might even mean physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more Christian. Don't worry about persecution, America. You're going to have that if you stand up for a great principle. I can say this with some authority because my life was a continual round of persecutions. After my conversion, I was rejected by the disciples at Jerusalem. Later, I was tried for heresy at Jerusalem. I was jailed at Philippi, beaten at Thessalonica, mobbed at Ephesus, and depressed at Athens. And yet, I am still going. I came away from each of these experiences more persuaded than ever before that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. I must bring my writing to a close now. Timothy is waiting to deliver this letter and I must take leave for another church. But just before leaving, I must say to you, as I said to the church at Corinth, that I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. Over the centuries, men have sought to discover the highest good. This has been the chief question of ethical philosophy. This was one of the big questions of Greek philosophy. The Epicurean and the Stoics sought to answer it. Plato and Aristotle sought to answer it. What is the summon bonum of life? I think I have an answer, America. I think I have discovered the highest good. It is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. So American Christians, you may master the intricacies of the English language, 
you may possess all of the eloquence of articulate speech. But even if you speak with the tongues of man and angels and have not love, you are become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You may have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries. You may be able to break into the storehouse of nature and bring out many insights that men never dreamed were there. You may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you will have all knowledge. You may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees, but all of this amounts to absolutely nothing devoid of love. But even more Americans, you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may give great gifts to charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. But if you have not love, it means nothing. You may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr. Your spilt blood may be a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn and thousands may praise you as history's supreme hero. But even so, if you have not love, your blood was spilt in vain. You must come to see that it is possible for a man to be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. He may be generous in order to feed his ego and pious in order to feed his pride. Man has the tragic capacity to relegate a heightening virtue to a tragic vice. Without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. So the greatest of all virtues is love. It is here that we find the truest meaning of the Christian faith. This is at the bottom, the meaning of the cross. The great event on Calvary signifies more than a meaningless drama that took place on the stage of history. It is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power drunk generation that love is most durable. It is the most durable power in the world. And that it is at bottom, the heart of the moral cosmos. Only through achieving this love can you expect to matriculate into the university of eternal life. I must say goodbye now. I hope this letter will find you strong in the faith. It is probable that I will not get to see you in America, but I will meet you in God's eternity. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to lift us from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to him be power and authority forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us this week. May God use these words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to stir within us and spur us on to good work. We are praying for each and every one of you this Martin Luther King Day. If you haven't already, 
Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes every Friday. We'll see you next week.